Good evening. Welcome to the Good Friday service. Uh, just a reminder that this service doesn't make any sense at all if you're not in worship on Easter Sunday morning. Just like Easter Sunday morning doesn't make any sense at all if you're not celebrating Good Friday in some sense. So these will function as bookends. The, the, the path of glory is always the path of the cross. And those two things can never be separated. The cross always leads to glory. Glory always comes through the cross. Let's go ahead and stand and sing the power of the cross.
may be seated. Old Testament reading, uh, the fantastic Isaiah 52 through 53, the fourth servant song is, uh, we're going to read this responsively, so I'll read a verse and then you read the bold parts. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good news, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight. For the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. And his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many 
and made intercession for the transgressors. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's pray and ask God to forgive our sins. Almighty God, our maker and redeemer, we poor sinners flee for refuge to your infinite mercy, seeking and imploring your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. O most merciful God, who has given your only begotten Son to die for us, have mercy upon us, and for his sake grant us remission of all our sins. And by your Holy Spirit, increase in us true knowledge of you and of your will and true obedience to your word, to the end that by your grace we may come to everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, has had mercy upon us and has given his only Son to die for us and for his sake forgives us all our sins. To those who believe on his name, he gives power to become the children of God and has promised them his Holy Spirit. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Grant this, Lord, unto us all. Amen. Please stand and confess with me our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please stay standing for the hymn.
2007, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who is now deceased, but uh, at the time was one of the leaders of the new atheist movement. So a group of atheists who are uh, very aggressive, very aggressive atheists, uh, um, along with um, uh, Richard Dawkins is in that group as well. In 2007, Christopher Hitchens published a book called God is Not Great, which maybe some of you heard of. And in this book, he ramped up the typical atheist rhetoric to a new level. One passage in this book, he says this, we keep on being told that religion, whatever its imperfections, at least instills morality. Religion's not true, of course, uh, the rational man knows, but at least it helps people be better people, at least it helps them be moral. Hitchens says, though, on every side, there's conclusive evidence that the contrary is the case, and that faith causes people to be more mean, more selfish, and perhaps above all, more stupid. This is not a new argument, although uh, most atheists up until that point, uh, intellectual atheists, had contented themselves with saying things along the lines of, uh, you know, uh, Christianity or religion is superstitious and backwards and it's a crutch. He ramps it up by saying religion's actually evil. People have been saying this for a while now that wars are, wars are caused by religion, almost all the evil and the uh, aggressive wars in the history of the world have been caused by religion. Christopher Hitchens is one of the first to put it down in print. He's arguing that superstitious, unnecessary, yes, that's all true. But more than that, God is immoral. If he does exist, he's evil. If he doesn't exist, the people who believe in him are evil. This is uh, not just contained to people who are atheists either, though. Religious people also feel the same way, at least some of the time. Like God, he either does bad things or he doesn't stop bad things from happening. Now, I know, I know that, that those of you who are pious are going to say right off the bat, well, God, God gives us free will, and that's why bad things happen. It's a very American answer. It doesn't actually get God off the hook. Any more than if I sit on, the side of, uh, sit, sit on the side of my yard and watch my kids play in the street and one of them gets hit by a car. And I'm asked, why didn't I stop them or try to keep them uh, from going out in the street? And I say, uh, free will. I really valued their individual choice. That would make me just as immoral as if I told them to go out in the street. You can't get, off the, you can't get God off the hook by saying, well, he gives people free will. Frankly, I don't want free will. The things that I do with my free will, if I have, even have free will, 
are pretty nasty and stupid and have gotten me in a lot of trouble. What I want is somebody to stop me. Like I say, even religious people like me know from time to time that there's a moral problem with God. Elie Wiesel, the Jewish, um, Jewish philosopher, um, wrote a, a story about, uh, he described a time when he was in Auschwitz. He was a teenager when he was in Auschwitz. And he described a time when three rabbis decided that they were going to hold a trial. And who they were going to put on trial was not Hitler. It was not the Nazis. It was God. God needed to go on trial. Here's what Wiesel says. Inside the kingdom of night, which is, in his book, Night is his name for Auschwitz. Inside the kingdom of night, I witnessed a strange trial, he said. Three rabbis, all erudite and pious men, believers in God, decided one winter evening to indict God for allowing his children to be massacred. I remember, I was there and I felt like crying, but nobody cried. He goes on to describe a trial that lasted several nights. Witnesses were heard, he says. Evidence was gathered. Conclusions were drawn, all of which issued finally in a unanimous verdict. The Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, was found guilty of crimes against creation and humankind. In Auschwitz, there was no other conclusion to his mind besides that. It's not just Jews who went through Auschwitz either. In 2015, Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers sued God. And in the suit, he says this. The suit, his suit asks for a, quote, permanent injunction ordering the defendant to see certain harmful activities in the making of terroristic threats. He goes on to say that the defendant, quote, directly and proximately has caused inter alia fearsome floods, egregious earthquakes, horrendous hurricanes, terrifying tornadoes, and pestilential plagues. He said he had political reasons for doing this, which I'm not going to go into. You can find those online. But what do you say to that? Where do the earthquakes come from? Where do the plagues come from? Where was God during the Holocaust? And honestly, it's not just big things like the, like the Holocaust. It's not just big thinkers like Hitchens. It's me and you. I had a conversation not too long ago with somebody who stopped coming to church. And when I asked them why they stopped coming to church, they told me, I'm kind of ticked at God right now about what happened to my mom. This person had, like, like many of you, the task of caring for her mother who was, had Alzheimer's and who was struggling in between the space of living on their own and not being able to live on their own, aware enough to fight going into assisted living and that sort of thing. That went on for several years, and at the end of that several years, the daughter couldn't go back to church. Her quote, I'm kind of angry at God right now about that. She knew. Where was God? She wouldn't have claimed that it was a Holocaust situation, but the question is there. Where is God when evil things happen? And if you're honest, and there's a few pious people in here who aren't honest about this sort of thing, but most of you are, you'll admit that there's been times in your life when you've blamed God for stuff that's happened, or where you have at least wondered, where is he at 
Why is he not stepping in here? Does he not see the brokenness that's going on? Maybe with something that's personally happening with you. Maybe that's something that's happening in the culture. Maybe that's something, that, something that's happening geopolitically. Where is God? Why is he not stopping this? And so, tonight, Good Friday, let's put him on trial. Let's do what the three rabbis did in Auschwitz. Let's put God on trial. Here's your chance, my chance. We can present our evidence. Lay it all out in front of him. Everything that's gone wrong with my life and your life, let's put it all out there. Where was God when my marriage was falling apart? Where was God when I was living in a loveless marriage for decades, trapped? Where was God when I raised my kids and poured my energy into them? And they moved away and they hardly ever call. And at best, they're ungrateful and dismissive. Where's God when I live in the middle of a drawn out and prolonged death of a loved one? Where's God when early onset Alzheimer's ruins our plans for retirement together? Where's God when I had all these dreams when I was young and now my life is just a piddling mess of mediocrity? Where is God when I grapple with sins and thoughts that paralyze me and I get no help? Where is he at? Where is God when Russia attacks Ukraine? Where is God when people with money oppress people with no money? What's he doing? Where is God when COVID happens? Let's call him to account. Let's put him in the dock. Let's ask questions and see if we can get answers. Let's ask him to account for himself. Do you hear what he's saying? He's not saying anything. He doesn't answer. When God's on trial, he's silent. So we present our evidence. There is no defense. The only thing that we can do is convict. Now, what do you think should be done with him? What should, we be, what should be done with the God who refuses to defend himself against the charge and the evidence of crimes against humanity and creation? What should be, what, what should be done with him? What would be just what would be right? Only his death. He must die. Anybody who would do what he's done, more piously, would not step in and intervene when the evil that's been done deserves to die. Will his death satisfy our desires for justice? Humans hardly ever think that far ahead. But it doesn't matter if they satisfy our desire for justice or not. He has sinned, he has committed the ultimate crime, and he must die. And so we gather in a crowd outside the courtroom and we yell, crucify him. And he lets us execute him. We kill God for crimes against humanity. He never defends himself. He takes the fall for all the bad things in the world that humanity's ever witnessed, for all the evil things in the world that humanity's ever blamed him for. And we've killed him for it. And now everything's gonna be okay. That's right. We've killed God. And now everything's gonna be okay. 
but he was pierced for our transgression. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, Lamb of God, being human, you knew the pain the cross would inflict. You knew the shame that you would undergo. Being divine, you knew that it was the only way that we could be redeemed. And all we can do tonight is praise you and thank you for willingly suffering a cruel death so that we may experience the glory of life with you. Lord, in your mercy. Jesus, while your death and resurrection assures us of your victory over evil, we've yet to experience that reality in its fullness. And so today we pray for all the nations of the world that the, that the evils in all of them, whether human-caused or natural evils, that you would heal those. We pray that you would be with our nation and its leaders, that you would work in the hearts and in the lives and actions of our president and Congress people and judges and state and local officials to love and value righteousness and justice and truth, your righteousness and justice and truth. We pray that you would heal your creation we pray that you would get rid of all diseases and all sicknesses and all natural disasters, that you would get rid of death. We pray that you would be with your church as it works for all of these things in your name and that you would bless us with faithful witness to your name. Lord, in your mercy, with the angels and those encircling your throne, we join in proclaiming Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. 
Amen. The Passion reading from the Gospel of John. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, I spoke openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. 
When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose, Peter, whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial, ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you weren't a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, 
My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an insurrection. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here's the man. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Pilate heard this. He was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. 
It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed them over to them, handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.
resurrection. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 